Welcome again, Marsha Wade. I've been thinking of you in this conversation, especially this week, because as Saturn moved into Pisces, which means out of all the Saturn-ruled signs, because it's been in Capricorn, you know, and then in Aquarius, my foot pain magically disappeared, and my mother came down with it. And then what? And my mother came down with it. That's wild. It's totally wild. I don't know what the... Um, uh, yeah, I, I like. I well, don't even Pisces know. You on your mid on your midheaven, so obviously there was some magical transfer. And the midheaven, the tenth house in the midheaven, you know, is one of the places that where the mo- our the mother energy lives. Oh, so. interesting. You know, and I have my mother's name is Eva, and I have the asteroid Eva on my midheaven too. Oh. Yeah. You know, or my midheaven's really at one Aries. It's not in Pisces in my Western chart, but it's all, you know, in my Vedic chart, it is. It's all Pisces. I wonder which one do you feel is stronger? The one Aries or the late Pisces? Both carry big advantages and big handicaps too, as everything does. Yes. Yeah. It's been really interesting because I, think I've been I mean I see where both show up for show for sure I think that there's a um I think right now I've just been really deeply in the Pisces piece of it and um you know and I've probably had I've probably had foot pain on and off ever since Neptune went into Pisces. You know, and my mom and I do this really interesting thing where um, like I, when I have a breakthrough, she often ends up in the emergency room or needs to go to the doctor or has some kind of health crisis. Like it tends to show up quite physically. Well, it's so interesting in your chart because you're cancer rising. That's the sign of the mother and the child. And then you have your sun and your moon in the 10th house of the mother. And, you know, every birth chart is designed, or another way to say it, our life on earth is designed so that our identity, our becoming, is always breaking new ground for what we're looking at and what we want to become and what's calling us. And maybe that happens on a literal level, breaking. Something gets broken in every breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, I would tell you unequivocally that when I broke my foot five years ago, it was that it started to free me up from things that I had been tripping over my entire life. And 
I think that, you know, or part of the way that I've processed it for myself, I think in the way that Pisces rules the feet is, you know, I, I think that being grounded in water is sometimes much more helpful to think about than being grounded in earth, you know, or being grounded in in dirt, you know, which is often how we think about it when we think about being grounded. And because we come from water and we're inside water and, you know, when we're in the womb and, um, and I think that challenge to be sort of like my foot issues have been clearly about healing my mother line. And I think the challenge is to be both grounded in the mother line and individuated from it. It's to, it's actually, isn't it like something to be transformed by it as we transform it? It's not a state. I feel like this is the big, huge shift we're being invited to make now. Saturn goes into Pisces and even more when Pluto goes into Aquarius. Just stop thinking of ourselves as nouns to start realizing everything alive is a verb. It's always changing, becoming, shifting. We create so many problems for ourselves because as soon as we think that we are a thing, we're automatically going to feel like, but wait a minute, come back. Oh yeah. Well, and clearly I think that's the big thing about me having breakthroughs in the way that I've had is that it, I mean, it clearly yanks something back in place. Like or in, and I've stopped seeing it as as much of a problem, and like really yielding to it, like seeing it more like a guardrail getting me to wherever I need to go. Then, you know, because it it's happened so many times that I've had been to some amazing workshop or had some personal breakthrough for myself, and then I got like literally, I will walk out of the appointment or the event or whatever and have a text from my dad or my sister that my mother is in the emergency room. And that whatever that was offering me, or it wasn't like for as much of a breakthrough as it was, it was still like, no, 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 you've got this other thing, like you're on this other line, on this other path. And you know, like, you know, and at the end of the day, the only way out is through, you know, and we've, you know, we tend to fight these things and try to break these patterns so much more than leaning into them, which is a great segue into what I really wanted to talk about today, (laughs) which is finding joy and pleasure in darkness that the, um, you know, you and I both have strong eighth house signatures, which is naturally ruled by Scorpio and, and is that dark, that darkness space. And, you know, in my signature talk, I talk about how my name literally means clad in black. And my dad was a CIA agent and taught me how to, you know, subconsciously how to fly under the radar of everyone else's perceptions and how I have these siblings that were very, 
much in the spotlight. My brother played professional baseball and my sister was a drum major and, you know, and her name is Mary, which means divine love or, you know, a virtual opposite to my own invisibility cloak. And so I have this very special relationship with darkness. And my mom, I was named after Melanie and Gone with the Wind. And my mom is so Scarlett O'Hara in so many ways, this big fearless presence. <laughs> you know, but I think the you know, the new story about darkness is that black holes are the most luminous structures in the universe, that your darkness is your light, or that it's a, and that the darkness isn't scary. We've demonized darkness for so many centuries or eons. And I would love to hear your, uh, your perspectives on it. So in general, I really try and make it a practice to like own what I'm thinking or, you know, to, to, to live inside of my own agency. But when we come to the story about darkness, I do think we have to look at, this is a story that gives enormous power to a very small group of people. And I think that's where this story started from, you know, from the oldest story is the story of darkness is the womb of light, of our birth out of the womb, of night is the time of rest, the time when for tens of thousands of years, we'd gather around the fire and tell stories, and we'd look at the stars and tell stories. And then there was a change. Um you know, about five to 7,000 years at the beginning of just before or at during the beginning of the Neolithic. From what I understand, it was a gradual process that happened over a long period of time, but, you know, that consisted of these um, people on horses with weapons conquering one by one the older Paleolithic cultures, and then there were new stories. All the things associated with darkness, with the feminine, with all the things that happen in and out of the dark from birthing and dying to um, sexuality, all of that became bad, and light became the thing. So I think, and we're, we so totally buy into it now, you know, like we think, you know, sending you light and love, but there is as much, maybe more love in the dark than in the light. I mean, too much light, um, you know, it scorches everything. It dries everything up and out. Things become too brittle in when there's not enough darkness, not enough um, fluidity, and we become stressed out, exhausted, burned out from too much light, 
and we're doing all the time and we don't we forget what it is to be and i feel like that's what has led us to this point when our whole earth is so out of balance and it's all about darkness and light oh yes i can really the darkness is you know it's the space where we rest and if we're, you know, if the sun is up all day, it's very, it's, it's disruptive to your circadian rhythms, to our, you know, to our circadian rhythms. It's so important. And when, um, you know, when I, you know, in teaching nervous system regulation, as well as in teaching story and how story changes our body, the same neurotransmitter sequence we need for change is the same neurotransmitter sequence a story takes us through. And it's alertness, awareness, reward, and rest. And if you cannot get around the circle, you don't change and you can get stuck. You know, to me, the light is getting stuck in that alertness, awareness phase, or really in, you know, often in just alertness. And you're not even building the awareness that you like to get to some reward, or you pick, or when light is your reward and darkness doesn't have any reward to it, you don't get to the rest. But I think we have to be deeply dissociated from ourselves to even think of darkness as not having any reward to it. Because if we can fully rest, then we can never be convinced of that light is the only thing, you know, that the answer to everything is more light. So in your story, where like where have you really found or like where has the darkness really showed up as a gift and where has the darkness showed up with opportunity in ways that, you know, maybe where you used it well or maybe where you, you know, where you didn't and had to repattern that later? Well... I've always had a fascination with the darkness. I remember even as a child, I I would wake up often in the middle of the night. And I grew up in a large family. There were five of us and we were all born very close together. So, um, So there was not a lot of, you know, you really had to actively seek out solitude. And maybe that's one of the reasons I used to wake up often in the middle of the night. And I would stand on my, we lived in a house that had been built, you know, like many 50s uh, ranch houses were with the high windows, you know, so you had to stand on the bed if you were a child to look out of the window. But I can still remember, I mean, I would, it was like the the darkness, the night was calling me. And I would slip my head, you know, between the window and the curtain. And just, it was like I was feasting on the night sky. All those stars and all that darkness. And it felt so alive. Um, And that was from a very early age. And I, I also remember, I used to love, we had a little 
um, cabin on a lake that was about an hour away from our town where we would go um, often, every other weekend until I was in high school, um, half the summer. And I used to love to wake up in the middle of the night and when everybody else walked through the sleeping quiet house, slip out the screen door without letting it bang behind me and walk down to the water, walk down the hill to the beach and just sit there in the dark. Um, I have a lot of memories like that of childhood as seeking out the dark. It was very compelling to me. Um, no one else being present, you know, being alone with the universe, it felt like. I totally get that. I, you know, I don't have as many specific memories, but I do always remember really retreating to my room and keeping the shades drawn, drawn. And even now it's been, you know, as a 50 something year old, it's been, it's an exercise for me to open my blinds every day. Like that's not my natural thing to, <laughs> to do, but definitely that, yeah. you know, I like loving being out, you know, laying on the ground and staring up at the stars. And even beyond that, one of the things that's always perplexed me about others, I guess, and I would love to know where this is in, um, or how this resonates with you and how your uh, the darkness in your astrology chart goes. But I've never really had this sense that the story about the devil is true or dangerous or bad, or you know that these religious stories that we you know and that these and that the energy of that and those entities are particularly real. And I, but I know many people that have very terrifying stories around that. I love my Pluto signature in my chart. And I don't know, or my thought has always been that because it's third house, it's, I have more open communication there. And so it's not as scary to me. I just see it as a. But you know, Many people who have Pluto in the third house can experience like an overpowering or disempowering sibling or overpowering or obsessive thoughts. So that's such a great example of how we, we can choose, you know, like we can choose whether Pluto in the third house will support us in befriending the darkness and the power that is in what we can't see or whether it's, you know, we feel overwhelmed by that, disempowered yeah. well, by and this, as I'm, as we're talking about this, I'm really like what's lighting up for me in terms of like the neurology of it is that, you know, our, internal work, like our brains basically live in a little black box. And so it only knows the information that it gets from our bodies, through our eyes, through our, you know, through our ears. And 
you know, and that's really the darkness. Stop there. Is that really true? Do you not think that somehow our neurons are connected? Oh, for sure, for sure. But it has to come through the physical structure. The brain just interprets it. So, like sometimes I tell the example of having a dream uh, about being kidnapped. And at the time, I was working with a dream interpreter. And after we went through it, she said, Melanie, do you think you were being kidnapped or do you think you were being rescued? And while they mechanically looked very similar, I had not considered (laughs) that I was being rescued. The story I created around it was that I had been kidnapped. But being rescued would have looked identically, but lived in my nervous system in a very different way. I love that you're saying that because you know what? That's really, I think, the thing I love so much about the myth of Persephone, who was both kidnapped and rescued by Pluto. I mean, in on some level, aren't both stories, there's a way in which both stories are true. I think this is true about right now, this strange time in our world. On on one level, we are we are being something that is happening that's out of our control, and that we would never have consciously set in motion the the changes in our climate structure, the extinction of you know millions of species, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the concentration of wealth, you know, in a very small um, number of hands. But on another level, we are being rescued from this story that has mesmerized us for so long about light, only light, and how that all that leads to working 24-7, never being able to rest. It's both kidnapping and oh, rescue. Oh, absolutely. I love, love And if you're that. only taking in information through your eyes, really, and you don't have the interoception in your body, like that internal map of your body well-established in your brain, then being in your body becomes a dangerous place. So you don't have the map. It feels scary because you don't know where to where to where to go. So like when you know the darkness and you walk through your own internal darkness, it like it quite literally creates a stronger map in your brain. If you're too visually dependent on information and you don't have that internal map, that is something that we might call anxiety or depression or burnout or um uh stage fright or, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways that that can, that that can show up. And having that relationship with your own internal darkness is so important to your nervous system in terms of creating safety. And in terms of creating a sense of sovereignty of agency. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's fundamentally, I mean, I would say that your 
interoception is a huge part of your intuition. And when you have that connection, you know how to make those decisions for yourselves, you know, or you know when some you get that gut feeling that's going and you then have the boundaries to exert your agency and to, you know, to say no or to say yes and not have it be really disruptive to your way of being. So, Melanie, do you think that the kid, so in a way we've been kidnapped from that too, from that sense of ourselves. And do you think, so do you think these times of as old structures collapse is that also rescuing us from our our disempowered disembodied oh i think so because you can't there's no going back to the old way of being the same you know in so i have two different things to say about that that i'm going to try to try to connect but you know i talk about transformation often through the story of Isis and Osiris, which was the story of how the stars moved. And Osiris literally got chopped into pieces as the king of Egypt, but came back together in a new way as the king of the underworld. But his coming back together was also really a coming apart I mean, he never came back Absolutely. as he was Absolutely. into the same, in a way he became a more, and I do think that's a fabulous analogy for what is happening now, that king energy that's in all of us, you know, because the other thing that happens when it's only light, light, light is it's only yang, yang, yang. And so we all become overly masculinized no matter what kind of body we're in. Right. But he went from being king of Egypt to being king of the underworld. And I think our opportunity is to be kings of our under, you know, to really be the ruler of our underworlds and to really know that internal space. And, you know, when I talk about uh, like medicine as a, like, you know, if we're going to talk about it on a big scale, like medicine as an institution has the worst Osiris wound of maybe anything because of how chopped into pieces it is. And there's nothing bringing it back together and nothing really connecting it with that underworld power. The other piece that really comes to mind and I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she, um, I heard someone speak last year about, she wrote her dissertation on that we're all, the earth is having its dark night of the soul and that we're all participating and experiencing that with the earth, you know, which goes back to, you know, that it's it's not all about us, that there's something bigger happening that we're playing, you know, that we're part of. Totally. And participating in. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I see so, like in the way that I understand 
how earth mechanics are mimicked in the body that when I look at the cosmos, you know, and look at all, like if I look at the world population, you know, the game I play with myself is like, oh, who's a bone cell and who's that hormone and who's a blood cell, you know, who's a red blood cell, who's a white blood cell, who's a brain cell, you know, that we're all these different parts. And at the same time, it's a hologram, hologram. So like we're all everything. Right. But I think sometimes we play these different roles at, at times, like maybe as a medical professional as a physical therapist that I spent a lot of time being a white blood cell. You know, I don't know, you know, but like, I don't know, there's no right or wrong answer, but that we're part of this, there's this bigger organism, you know, in this bigger breath and this bigger body that is, um, that's happening. And, you know, I think the gift of, for me, the gift of astrology and mythology and, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with um, with mythology books because we had a number of those in our house, and especially the one uh, Edith Hamilton. Oh, I can't remember yeah. Hamilton. Yeah, that that book was always one that I was just really drawn to, and spent a lot of time going through. And but the gift of all of this for me is that it gets me out of my own story. And it, when you can zoom out to that 60,000 foot view or to that bigger perspective, it's incredibly anxiety inducing and it inspires purpose. It's rewarding. It's, um, yeah, it, it like it's been just transformative for my own mental health and physical health, and and it's a skill, or you know, or it's a it's a perspective that we're not, you know, we're really taught to think small and individualistically about things, especially in the United States, rather than to think. Um, like there's something bigger happening. Right. Absolutely. And that bigger thing takes us back to the darkness. It really does. It's that whole unseen world and those unseen patterns. And like astrology is such, in our modern world, is really this incredibly unseen pattern that, you know, I mean, I can take my Western astrology and my Vedic astrology and it explains my entire life, like down to, (laughs) sometimes down to the day and the event. And it's been such an incredible gift to find purpose in the trauma and purpose in the things that I didn't think I wanted or that I didn't think I chose and the ability for myself, I've gotten to the point, I realize how I created all of my trauma and that I can own that or that I co-created it. And that's a lot of power. Yeah. And and for me, also realizing that trauma itself has a creative role. 
Like, I don't think, I think this is the meaning of um, all the dark goddesses and gods that we've kind of banished from our awareness um, that they are all transformers of trauma. They own trauma. They do not try, because the trauma-free life is the life with no shadows, the life with no darkness, the life with no transformation. Things can change, but only within very narrow parameters. If some, If there's not a rupture, a break, into something we didn't see coming, we don't know how to deal with, you know, something that, um, which isn't to say we don't, we, we need to equip ourselves to meet trauma, I feel, in a transformative way. But the that phrase of healing our trauma makes me a little... I feel like we're getting we're we're getting to a kind of dangerous edge. I I agree. I mean, I think you. I don't really think there's any healing it. I think there's integrating it. And our nervous systems fundamentally are driven towards contrast. We are always seeking contrast. I don't think we necessarily have to be seeking contrast in the extreme ways that we see in the world. But that's the the collective well-worn groove that's been going on for at least a number of centuries. And, and it's that contrast that drives the transformation and and I really see, you know, I mean, it's I get it. It's I've worked with lots of people in really severe trauma, and it's hard when you're in it and it's new and it seems really senseless to find a box to wrap it up in and, and put it on a shelf and know where it goes. But it it is really a guardrail that keeps you on your life path. Even guardrail seems a little too, like a guardrail is something that's out there. And trauma, I think, is something that comes inside of us and wants to transform us so that we are not the same person we were before it happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think, you know, in getting people to grok it in the, yeah, you know, initially you know, that like if you're on your life path, that your trauma is just a guardrail or, you know, you, you it's true, you cannot be the same person and it's going to take you in a different direction. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, and traumas come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, but they're not for com- comparing where we really get caught up and what I think really becomes a problem is when we make a contest out of our traumas and compare them because that's a game nobody wants to win. And that doesn't winning it doesn't serve. I mean, I'm thinking of what in my life have been 
the two primary traumas. And I think they put a trauma signature on every life. And one, I don't consciously recall my own birth, but I very vividly remember giving birth. And that was... um, the most traumatic and ecstatic experience I've ever had, ever. And then there have been several times when people I've loved very much have died in my presence. And that also was um, an unspeakably beautiful experience. And it, you know, ripped my life open, you know? So I couldn't say either of those were um, only blissful experiences. I mean, owning the trauma is kind of part of making space. And and all of those, they, they changed me forever. And they're still changing me. Um, And so I guess that's when I think of life, even before there was war, even, you know, before there was um, the hoarding of money, there was always, there was always trauma. I feel like it, it is a signature, a human signature, and it's, its purpose is to awake us from thinking we are nouns, not verbs. I could not agree more. And we just, you know. But we have have to support, you know, just like you, death is happening better when there's a doula to hold the space for it. And so is birth. And I think that's how I really see the work you're doing. You're a trauma doula. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's very transformation, Dula. Yeah, no, I definitely um, thank you. I definitely resonate with the whole birth death doula thing, and I've done that at different, like through my life, at different points as well. And at the end of the day, when something is really high contrast to our nervous systems, we call it trauma. You know, that's our word for something that's very high contrast. And um, yeah, and, you know, we definitely need more. um, I mean, it's easy to say we need more doulas. We need more ways of being that support the transformation so that it doesn't have to Uh, Or maybe so you get to that, so that the birth goes more smoothly, so that you don't end up with any more, any unnecessary complications. You know, like I think about when I broke my foot, when I fell, my, I had really been working on stillness. And my first thought when I fell was, oh, I guess I haven't been still enough. (laughs) And when I went to the, uh, 
was at the urgent care facility the near my house. The doctor said, she said, Melanie, you're the happiest person with a foot fracture we've ever seen. <laughs> I just wasn't caught up in the story that, oh no, my foot is broken. I have middle school age children. My husband's leaving town for 10 days. What am I going to do? How am I going to make all this work? I just knew I needed to be more still and that it was an opportunity and I could slide straight into that story rather than resisting it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, and that's a, you know, there are, or it's easy in our hierarchical system, you know, we would, there are other traumas that we would say would be, you know, are legitimately worse than just falling and breaking your foot, but your nervous system doesn't see it as any different. It's, you know, it's just a high contrast situation. And so, you know, and I will say in my life, astrology has really been a magic elixir, you know, and the stories that go with it have been a magic elixir for getting through this and really given me a framework to help understand what's happening when I don't understand what's happened, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, uh, like in my, in my signature talk, I start it with a coffee metaphor and I talk about my uh, health crisis, marriage crisis, lawsuit crisis is my lawsuit latte. And life is going to hand you a drink you didn't order at some point. <laughs> you know, that's just the way what's going to happen. But really having the tools or having some way to go, okay, there's something bigger happening here and can I see that, I think is really the the gift in it. And so many people like you and even like Carolyn Elliott with her existential kink work are really doing that with the darkness. And, um, you know, like I'm seeing it, you know, there's lots of dark goddess. Uh, you know, our friend Hetian Grobler has a, made a beautiful black Madonna tarot deck. And there's lots of, I'm seeing lots of black Madonna work with uh, different people. Christine Cleveland does amazing work around that and social justice. And so there's, it's fun to see all the little seeds that are getting planted right now. Yes. And, you know, ultimately, I think what the dark goddess invites us into and astrology every birth chart is full of darkness we just have we're so um entrained to identify the light and the action points that it's like right in front of us you know the ways that our life our lives are filled with darkness which is the same as saying with creative potential with transformative spaces, with transformative frequencies. That's all, that's that's not in the light. That's not in the doing. That's not in the making it happen. Um, it's like the sentence I've probably quoted hundreds, 500 times, um, the last sentence of Eudora Welty's memoir, One Writer's Beginnings, for all serious daring starts from within in the dark beneath the surface and ultimately i feel like 
the greatest reward that the darkness has is to show us that that part of ourselves that gets stuck in a story, any story, is just the tiniest part of who we really are. We really are the whole big mystery. And most of it is undiscovered, is still becoming, is fathomless. And I think in these times we're living in, that's the most exciting and important news. I love it. The Like, I'll just add to that. I've heard a rabbi speak about how in the... Uh, in the Jewish tradition, when they want to know the meaning of a word, they go to the first use of it in the Old Testament. And in the first use of Satan in the Old Testament, Satan means obstacle. It was not a noun. It was a, or not a. It was not a referenced as a person. It was just an obstacle. You know. And then we went and personified this obstacle. <laughs> you know, as a. Uh, as a bigger being over time. But I love that, um, you know, how you redefine darkness and that it's really, it's so much, you know, for as much as our nervous systems hold our trauma and it's like, and that's how, you know, and our nervous systems maybe need to be regulated in the way that, because that's out in in the collective in a really big scale right now, our nervous systems fundamentally hold our stories. Totally. And our definitions of work, like how we perceive, you know, if you if darkness is not this terrible, scary thing, you don't hold it in your nervous system that way. Darkness can be delicious and interesting and exciting and Don't you think teaching. your nervous systems hold the stories we know, but also the ones that we haven't yet discovered or told? Aren't those like... Absolutely. I think story lives epigenetically in our bodies. I think the old stories, I mean, we know that we hold the traumas of our ancestors or that like science really understands that. And so the, but I also think in the way that uh, or like I'll go, so the example I'll give just in the work, working with people energetically in the way that I perceive it. Um, the sphenoid bone in the head, which sits behind the eyes, like the, in your our optic nerves go through it, it looks very much like an owl. And our, the nerves to our eyes go through the eyes of the owl. And, but I have a client in Hong Kong, and in her sphenoid, I see a heron. You know, I see a bird that's much more in her cultural mythology than in, you know, not that owls aren't, but it's, you know, but I just see something more specific. And so I think these old stories and old mythologies are also living in our bodies in different layers. And sometimes it shows, you know, and I will say sometimes, like if I treat a yoga instructor, their body often wants to be treated with Hindu-based mythology, not with Greco-Roman-based mythology. That's just what they respond to because that's what they're in or the layer that they're working through them, 
selves and somebody that's of African descent, you know, might have more uh, Egyptian mythology or Inanna or, you know, that, you know, instead of Venus, it might be more Mott around the kidneys and that there's, you know, and it's just a, I, I do think all of these stories like old and new and past, present and future are all right there. And the beautiful thing about story is that we can, we can change it and we can change how it lives in our body and how it serves us and how it serves the collective. Right. Yes, totally. Well, Marsha, I'm so grateful for this time with you. And I look forward to another delicious discussion soon. Mm. Thank you. I've loved being with you. Have a wonderful day.